Our sermon passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 2, verses 2 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Holy Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, for your word that does not return void, for your word that draws us to think and gaze on heavenly things. I pray that you would do a work in us by the power of your word and your spirit working in our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Uh, for those of you who weren't with us before, we um, have been in the gospel market in the winter times. We're in the, we're in the gospel. And last winter we made it to the end of chapter 8. And so now we're picking up back again in chapter 9. And it's right in the middle of the book. And it's a powerful reflection as we consider the events of the transfiguration. You know, when I was uh, living in St. Louis for three years, one of the things I missed the most was living near mountains, like real mountains. They called things mountains, but they could drive on them and live on them. I was like, well, that's not really a mountain. A mountain is like, you know, it's got rock and snow and you, you know, you, you got to climb it. And so so moving back home, I, I really appreciated the mountains that I grew, grew up around my entire life. You know, one of those things is driving down Highway 12. You know, there's that one turn, which if all of you have probably driven down Highway 12, you know this turn that I'm talking about, that turn where you, you, you turn around the corner and there she is, Mount Rainier, and all her glorious beauty, and there's that little turnoff where you can turn and you can take the pictures, and it doesn't matter how many times, I've been on that road probably every year of my life, and I still marvel Every time I turn that corner on a sunny day and she's out and she's beautiful and it's always breathtaking. The question is why? Why is that breathtaking for us? Why do mountains and valleys and, and canyons take our breath away? Why do we go to art museums and, and concerts? Why do we decorate? Why do we, without thinking, when we walk into this room, we look up and we gaze at the beauty of this ceiling? The answer I'm going to put forward to you this morning is that because we were made for glory. We were made for glorious things. We can't help ourselves but search out glory. And paired with glory this morning we're going to find is authority. We were also made as people seeking out authority. It's why we talk politics, even though you're not supposed to talk about politics apparently. We still do. It's why we can't help but follow leaders. We're always looking for leaders to follow. It's why charismatic leaders trick us into following them. You know, even the anti-establishment people among us, you're still searching for authority. You just found it in yourself, right? We were made with a deep, profound uh, longing 
for glory and authority. We can't help ourselves. Our problem is that we often turn to pitiful glories and pitiful authorities. We see the reflections of a, of a mountain and a lake, and we think we're looking at a mountain. We see the reflection of glory in the mountains, and we worship the mountains. We turn to reflections of authorities and our leaders, and we worship our leaders who, who we think are going to save us. Why do we do this? Why are we so quick to do this? Well, because I think we are too easily pleased with the things of this earth. We're too easily pleased with reflections. In our longing to find the real thing, we settle for the reflection of the real thing. And maybe we don't quite understand just how glorious the source of all glory is. You know, C.S. Lewis has this great line where he encourages people to trace the sunbeam to the sun and behold the sun itself. And and that's what we're going to find in transfiguration this morning. Jesus is going to draw our gaze to the source of all glory and all authority, which is himself. In the transfiguration, Jesus reveals that he is the glory. He is the authority that we're searching for. He's the answer to our lifelong quest to the deepest longings and desires of your hearts. Um, you, you know, the first eight chapters of Mark that we reflected on last winter and spring focused on Jesus kind of revealing himself as the Messiah. He did that by showing his power over the diseases, right? Over, over the spiritual world, casting out demons, and even over creation, calming storms. And so the disciples have seen glimpses of who Jesus is as he's working these miracles but they haven't yet seen fully who he is. And in the transfiguration, they're going to see on full display the power of Jesus. As Jesus, you know, for the last bit of this book, begins to set his gaze and, 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 and marches towards Jerusalem, he begins this by revealing his glory to his disciples, encouraging them for what's going to lie ahead. And in this, Jesus lets us also see the fullness of his identity. And as they marvel at this profound glimpse of heaven on earth, we, as the readers now, are called to marvel as well, to behold, to draw our gaze to the source. And so there's two aspects of Jesus that's revealed this morning that we're going to talk about. The first is his glory, and the second is his authority. You know, and on topics like the transfiguration, uh, there's so many books, so many sermons that have been written and spoken about this. I'm going to be drawing from so many different things that I've read and listened to. So it's hard for me to quote everything uh, in the context of the sermon. But I, I'm going to be borrowing from two, especially from Eckhard Schnabel, which, you know, if you name your child Eckhard, I guess he has to be a theologian. I think that's in the, in the Bible somewhere in Numbers. And, uh, and, and also a pastor, Robert Cunningham. So first, we're going to look at the glory of Christ. Look with me back here at verse 2. He says this, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And one of the things that's happening, even from the setup from verse 2, is there's a lot of Old Testament imagery happening that we can't miss if we want to understand. You know, if you remember... Mark is a, is a gospel. It's very light on details. He goes really quick, snapshots, moment to moment. And so whenever he gives us specific details, we should pay attention to those. And one of the details he gives us at the beginning is this idea of six days. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him. One of the things that this is setting up for us is, who also had to wait six days before going up on a mountain? Well, Moses. Moses, in Exodus 24, the second time he went up to to Mount Sinai to meet with God, he had to wait six days before he ascended into a high place. And so from the very beginning, the reader 
is meant to be thinking Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, this moment, which is the most glorious moment in the, in the Old Testament, where the glory of God is on, on full display, giving his, his people his law, revealing his glory in this profound act with clouds and thunder and lightning. The reader is supposed to be thinking Mount Sinai. This is a, a Mount Sinai moment. And again, you see, what are they doing? They're going up to a high place. They're going up on a mountain, or similar to Mount Sinai, where they, God met with his prophet Moses. And so there's this Mount Sinai should be on the mind for us as we're entering into this story. So for there's something different this time. At least at this point in the story, there's, there's, there's no clouds. There's no thunder. There's no lightning. The only one with them at this point is Jesus. And this is the great twist of the story is that Jesus is going to show that he is the glory. Jesus is the very presence of God with them in this high place. And this is actually made evident here when it says that he's transfigured before them. And this word for transfigured is actually the same word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. You know, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. This is Jesus before them, transforming. And it's so otherworldly, you get a sense that they have a hard time actually explaining just what happened. It says in verse 3, he tries to explain it, saying, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. You know, he's it, like no one on earth could bleach them. It's kind of a, a, f- a funny way to say it. You know, I, for me, when I read that, that line stands out because you don't hear about people bleaching clothes in the Bible very often. And so I, what's happening is he's struggling to describe what this moment was like because it was so otherworldly. It's, it's, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. It isn't something that can be created by human hands. You can have enough chemicals in the world to, to create something as white as what was happening. It's so radiant. It's like nothing on earth, like nothing that could be created. It's, it's splendor from another world. There are witnesses to something that's transcendent, to his transcendent glory in Jesus. It's a glimpse of that Revelation 22 moment that David preached on last week where there will be darkness no more and God will be the source of all light. It's, 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 it's that. This is what some, some theologians will call an eschatological inbreaking. An eschatological inbringing, which is a fancy way of saying this, this end time thing, this eschatology, this end time idea is happening now. It's this breakthrough moment where that future glory, that future light, that future hope is seen fully right now in this moment. This is what's happening. This is actually why this account focuses on his clothing. You know, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, what was, what was, what was glowing with him? His his face, right? And remember, his face was glowing because it was reflecting the glory of God like the moon reflects the, the sun. But here it says that his clothes became radiant. That's strange to us, right? Well, what, is, what does it mean that his clothing uh, became radiant? What he's saying is that Jesus himself is actually the source of the glory. He is the source of his light so much so that his clothes are shining, it's shining through him to make his clothes light up. You know, this is reflective of what Psalm 104 says about God, which says this, that God wears light like a garment. Light emanates from God. His glory flows through him. And in this, we find Jesus doesn't reflect God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says it best. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Jesus is the source of all light. 
the source of all life, the source of all that is, uphold in the universe by his power. They are witnessing the glory of Christ on full display, the radiance of his glory fully before him. And in response to this glory, they and we, I think, are called to behold Christ. It's like, you know, if you've ever, when you turn and you see the mountain, what can you do but behold it? Behold the scene. You take it in. And only here, we're tracing those reflections of glory to the the source of that glory, which is God himself. We're called to behold him. You know, with how glorious the sunset is, how much more glorious is the source of that sunset, right? The greater glory you find in a reflection, how much greater is the source of that thing? Do we do this? Do you behold Christ, the, the source of all that is glorious in this world? The source of any reflective glory that we find? Do, do you behold the source, Christ? Or in a search for glory, do you settle for reflections? Do you settle for lesser glories, making idols of reflections, settling for the moon when the sun is before you? Because the truth is, those lesser glories are never going to satisfy you. Not truly, not fully. They satisfy you a moment, like, you know, breakfast will satisfy you for a few hours, but not for long. And the reason why they don't, and the reason why they can't satisfy your longings is because we were made in the image of God. You were made in the image of his glory, and you yourself are a reflection of the glory of God. And as reflections, we long to find the source of our glory and so we can only find the quest for, our, for glory quenched when we behold the source, which is Christ, the source of all glory. Right? Other reflection of God's glory in the world can't satisfy us because they were never meant to. They were meant to point towards the source that, so that we can marvel all the more at the glory that is Jesus. And so in our failed attempts at finding glory, we pervert something good by our finding fulfillment in it. And so as we behold Jesus in the glory of Christ in this moment, the first thing we're called to do is simply behold it. It's not rushing and trying to do something. It's just beholding what is before us and marveling at that which is Christ. And when we do this, what we find here is that hand in hand with ultimate glory is ultimate authority, which is the second aspect of Christ I want to talk about this morning is the authority of Christ. And we see the the authority starting here in verse 4. It says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is kind of an an odd thing. Um, Two people that aren't living on earth anymore at this time is Moses and and Elijah, and here they are with Jesus. They're arguably two of the most revered Old Testament figures. You know, Moses was the great prophet who ascended Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, and is, is a figure here that represents God's law to in, in this moment. And Elijah was that bold, that fiery prophet who, you know, battled with the, with the, the prophets of Baal. Um, and he also met with God on Mount Sinai. And he represents the prophets. You know, and the prophets, who are they? But they're the mouthpieces of God. A prophet's job was to say the things that God would tell him. So a prophet would hear something from God, and the prophet, if he was faithful, would just go speak those exact words that he heard. And, you know, that's why they always say, Thus saith the Lord. And so between these two characters, you have the, all the laws and all the prophets, God's word, represented by these two people. And here these two prophets are again on a high place. And this time, who are they meeting with? Jesus. 
a transfigured Jesus in all his glory. And here we are learning that Jesus is not merely just another prophet, but he is actually the one who Elijah and Moses heard from when they were on Mount Sinai way back when. He was the one that actually gave the law. He is the one who put words in the prophet's mouths because he is not an ordinary prophet. He is God himself. But we get the sense in this story that Peter doesn't quite get it. And, uh, you know, Peter responds to this awesome moment. You got to imagine that Jesus is maybe a little disappointed. And he's like, come on, really? You've seen all this and this is how you respond? Verse 5, he says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is my favorite part. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You know, it's fun to know about the Gospel of Mark is he likely got his account from Peter. And so this is Peter kind of calling himself out. I like that Peter doesn't take himself too seriously. We could probably all learn from that. You know, and I'm sure we've all been in those kind of moments before where you don't know what to say. Maybe something awkward's happening, so you just say what's first thing that comes to mind. And for him, he's like, hey, I want this moment to last. This is awesome. So cool I'm here. Let's build some tents. Let's, you know, let's make a weekend out of it. And, uh, you know, he, he wants them to dwell there. He wants this glorious moment to last. You know, but one of the things we learn from this and can infer is that the fact that he wants to build a tent, one for each of them, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, we get this sense that he doesn't quite understand just who Jesus is. He doesn't yet see how significant Jesus really is. He thinks he's very significant for sure. He actually called him the Christ in the chapter before this. But I don't think he quite understands just who the Christ is yet. He sees them as a peer to Moses and Elijah. And to be fair, though, to the Jewish mind, there was no one greater than Moses and Elijah. So he's saying, listen, you are the greatest human that's ever lived. And, uh, he, but he doesn't quite see him as the source of all glory and authority yet. And what we learn is that his authority isn't a reflection of other authority. But his authority is the source of all authority. And in this, Jesus is saying, listen, I am greater than Moses and Elijah. They're the ones that came to me. There is no one greater than that. And in Peter's mind, he's thinking to himself, but there's no one greater than Moses and Elijah except Yahweh. And clearly Jesus isn't trying to say that, is he? And here we find that, yes, indeed, he is. You see this in verse 7 as God himself answers this. And the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is my beloved son, listen to him. You know, this is the second time that God the Father has said this in the Gospel of Mark. The first was at the baptism of Jesus, and this account very much mirrors that baptism. Now God comes again and restates this truth of who Jesus is in front of his disciples. Here again on another mountain, God is speaking, and he spoke to Moses and Elijah. And what does he say? Listen to Jesus. As one person speaking on this says, the will of the triune God is summarized here in just a few words. This is my son, Listen to him. Jesus is my son. Listen to him. Do you, do you want to know what the will of God is? Listen to Jesus. Do you uh, want to know what God loves? Listen to Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks? Listen to Jesus. Whatever he says, God says. Whatever he loves, God loves. Whatever he does, God does. Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another man. He is the one who puts words into the mouths of the prophets. Jesus doesn't just listen to the law. He is the source of the law. He is the one that all the law and all the prophets point to. 
God's word and his laws all flow from Christ himself. He is supreme authority and that all other authorities point to. We're simply called to listen to him. This turns the question to us. Do we do that? Do we listen to Jesus? I don't mean, do you hear voices in your head? Jesus has given us the full revelation of what he wants for you in his word. Do you listen to it? Do you read it? Do you meditate on it? Do you submit yourself to it? Or do you settle for the lesser authorities that vie for your attention? You were made for authority. And so just like we can settle for reflections of glory, we can often find ourselves settling for reflections of authority. We put our hopes in our leaders. But what if all our failed attempts of authority were actually pointing to the one perfect authority? What if they were reflections of the one true authority in Christ who defines right and wrong, whose rule and reign is perfect, whose perfect law leads to freedom? Because when we find the end of our great quest for authority in Christ, we actually end up finding glory in him. And when we behold his glory, we can't help but listen to him. These are two things everyone on this earth is searching for. And in Jesus, we find the fullness of both. Because it's where we were made to find our source. It's where we're made to find our home. And, and this is what we find here, actually, at the very end in verse 8. And suddenly, so immediately, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And so just as this moment kind of came on in a moment, in a flash, in a blink of an eye, so it goes away. One moment it's there, the next moment it's gone. And who are they left with? They're left with just Jesus here. And they saw, and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus, in this profound moment of reassurance to his, his disciples who are about to enter into the most difficult times of their life as Jesus dies, tells them, Listen, I am with you, and I am enough. I am with you, and I am enough. I am all you need. As Alistair Roberts says, he says this, that the law and the prophets are passing and temporary. Christ is lasting and permanent. Right? Moses and Elijah couldn't stay there because their time had come. Their time had passed. Their work was over. And it's found their end in Christ. If you have Jesus, you have all that you need. He is the everlasting one. You don't need more than that because all of life flows out of him. There is nothing more than him. You need no other glory. You need no other authority. You have it all in Jesus. The question for us is, is he enough for us? Is his glory and authority enough for you? Ultimately, when it isn't, I think it's because of two primary things. That For one, we don't behold him rightly. And two, we don't listen to him. Right? We don't behold him because we're distracted by the countless things vying to be held instead. And we don't listen to him because of the many different authorities vying for our allegiance that we settle for. And what I want us to see this morning as we think on the transfiguration is that no other glory can compare to the glory of Jesus. He is more radiant than the sun itself. There is no other authority that compares to the authority of Jesus. He is the source of all goodness. His laws lead to freedom. So we're called to behold him. To listen to him. He wants to be the glory for you to enjoy. He wants to be the authority for you to obey. He wants you to discover him. So much so that he actually, in a profound act, laid down his glory and authority on the cross so that you could share in it. And even though we often will chase pitiful substitutes, even though he should abandon us for this treason, he doesn't. 
He lays down his glory and authority so that you can have life. And he does this because his greatest act of glory, his greatest act of authority, are precisely when he laid them down for you. So that you too could behold him, so that you could find the end of your longings in him. May we be a people who fight to behold Christ above all others. May we be a people who listen to Jesus over all others. And as we do, may we be a witness of the light of Christ in a world that loves the darkness. That we wouldn't cower from the darkness that is found in the world, but that we would press into it with the light of Christ. Because no matter how dark the darkness in the world is, it is nothing compared to the radiance in the light of Christ. And that light has come into the world. That's why we light candles. It is here. It is now. It is shining like the sun. May we behold it and listen to it. Pray with me. Merciful God and Father in heaven, give you thanks for your word. Give you thanks for your son. May we behold the radiance of his glory. May you reveal yourself to us. And help us to have courage to listen to you, even when it doesn't make sense, even when everyone says no. May we listen to you. Encourage us in this, we pray.